Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Jonathan Goldson. Uh, he and I became acquainted through some social media outreach, and he has, frankly, one of the best messages around leadership, around ethics, and what I see as compliance around. So we reached out, and I asked him if he would take the time to visit with me today about some of the things that he talks about, and he was gracious enough to take some time. So with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for visiting with me today. It's my pleasure, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. So many of my listeners are in the anti-corruption compliance space, yet leadership, ethics, and most importantly, corporate culture are on the forefront of our minds constantly. You talk about trust in a way that really, I thought, informed the entire discussion around culture and business organizations. Start off with, why do you feel trust is the key to business success? Well, let me start with a story that I heard just last week. A fellow came into work 13 minutes late, and his manager berated him in front of all of his colleagues, told him how dare he come in late, threatened him he would be fired if it happened again. Well, this fellow had never been late once in all the times he had worked for this particular company. He also had quite a bit going on. He, had a, he was going through a divorce. He had some medical problems. He had previously taken work home, worked overtime, gone the extra mile, and he decided on the spot that he was never going to do anything extra again, never take work home, never do more than he was required to, and just keep his head down until he could find another job. That one moment of disrespect destroyed any trust that had existed in that relationship between the employer and the employee. And I was talking to another podcaster and explaining the fundamentals of ethics for building trust. And she said to me, this is so obvious. Why doesn't everybody behave this way? When you set up your question, Tom, I've been talking about this stuff so long that sometimes I wonder <laughs> what I have to say that's new and interesting because it's just become so, it's like, it's like water to a fish. And when you create a culture of trust, and that generates loyalty. It generates passion. It generates productivity. You have people who are in sync with the message and the purpose and the mission of the company. You have employees that are engaged and want to give their all. And are, when they feel trusted, they are empowered. And so they're looking for opportunities to prove themselves by doing the best they can. And you have a company culture that thrives, that's vibrant, that's exciting. People want to come to work. And success is a foregone conclusion. Let me give you two reasons why you should continue to say that message. I talk to the regulators in my space, and that's the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice. And every time I meet with them, I ask, should I change my message? And every time their response is, absolutely not. You keep saying the same thing over and over and over and over. The one, the regulators say to do it. But two, more importantly, Simply because you say it over and over and over does not mean it's not new information. And I will use myself as an example in preparing for this podcast. You had a fabulous story about Paul O'Neill and Alcoa, which I frankly was not aware of. 
So I was wondering if you might be able to talk to us about the power of what Paul O'Neill did, the example from Alcoa, and how that really leads into your discussion around the ROI of business ethics. Absolutely. I love that story, and I use it in my, in my ethics keynote. Paul O'Neill was uh, Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush, but before that, he took over as head of Alcoa in 1987. The company had been limping along for over a decade because of energy costs, labor prices, sluggish economy, more nimble, small countries, companies were, were gobbling up market share. And when he took over, he took the podium for the first time, and he announced his grand plan to save the company by making his number one priority worker safety. And the moment he finished speaking, investors stampeded out of the room. One of them called his 20 biggest clients. He said, the board put some crazy hippie in charge. He's going to kill the company. Sell, sell, sell. Well, a year later, this fellow said that it was the worst piece of advice he ever gave in his entire career because Alcoa profits hit an all-time high. And it happened because Paul O'Neill demonstrated to his employees that they were his top priority. You know who talks about this a lot now is Simon Sinek. He says that the job of management is to take care of the people who produce the product. It's not the product itself. When he put out suggestion boxes asking employees to report hazards, safety hazards, and when they did, the company spent $3 million in two months to fix potential problems. And then things got exciting because employees started giving suggestions that extended across all areas of operations. And one low-level employee gave a piece of advice that doubled profits on aluminum siding. And when he was asked about it, he said he had this idea a decade earlier. But it was only when he saw that management was responding to safety suggestions that he believed that they would take him and his ideas seriously. And so from 1987 to 1999, under Paul O'Neill's leadership, Alcoa Aluminum went up in market value 900%. And net income increased over 750%. He proved himself to his employees. And so they did everything they could to prove themselves to him. You have a very powerful example on your website that we'll link to in the show notes around the ROI of business ethics. I was wondering if you might be able to walk us through that. Well, yeah. You know, according to studies, something on the order of half a trillion dollars a year is lost in the United States to worker disengagement and workplace conflict. Why are people disengaged? Why are they in conflict? Because they don't work in an environment where they feel respected, where they feel that their work makes a difference, that it's important, where they feel connected with their coworkers, certainly not with their employers. And the studies show that the expense of, if you have a disengaged workforce, something like 17% of workers report being actively disengaged. And a disengaged employee is 34% less efficient than he or she should be. And all of the expenses that go along with that disengagement or with turnover, the hiring, the training, the ramp time, the onboarding, the increased errors, and the general atmosphere of negativity that comes from rapid turnover, Cost something like 
of an employee's annual salary to replace that employee. So when you simply do the numbers, you see how expensive a proposition it is. And what's more, companies that are ranked highest for ethics, they grow faster than average. Employees report being more satisfied, being more energized, being more loyal, recommending this job to friends and family. It's really a no-brainer. In my uh, corporate career, my first corporate position was at Halliburton as an in-house lawyer. And one of the projects I worked on, we worked to estimate the cost to train an employee to get them fully up to speed. We estimated it at around $400,000 per employee. And that is utilizing all of the tools you talked about or all of the things you have to do. Would that be consistent with some of the findings you've seen? Well, sure. I mean, it certainly it's going to vary from one company to the next, depending on the amount of training that's required. But the universal is that you invest in your workforce. And the more you invest in them, the more you can expect to get out of them. And so this horrible phrase that you hear, soft skills, which refers to the basic day-to-day interaction of people saying hello, smiling, showing empathy, showing concern, knowing who people are and understanding what they're going through. I worked in a high school where the principal, he, you know, if we needed time off for health or family or personal development, he always saw that we had it. He always had our backs. He was always there for us. He oversaw the functioning of the school so that we could do our jobs. And he left us alone as long as we were performing. And we had extraordinary performance from our students. He wasn't managing the students. He was creating an environment where we could do our best. In the compliance world, the phrase speak up culture is becoming more important. And a speak up culture is partly employees having a trust to raise their hand and speak up. It is partly having a system protocol procedure to hear when someone raises their hand and speaks up. But I think the most important part, or next important part, is the ability to listen. It seems to me in many of your presentations, you talk about listening as a key leadership skill. Would that be a fair assessment? Well, sure. My TED Talk is all about listening because that's how we get to know other people. And the more we know other people, the more we know ourselves because we don't live in a vacuum. We live in society. We live around other people. So when we understand those around us, we understand how we fit into our respective communities. Someone pointed out that the letters in listen also make up the letters of silence. And I like to go back to Jewish history. When the high court of elders would meet, this is thousands of years ago, the least distinguished of the scholars would always speak first. And then they would go up the ranks until they got to the president, the head of the court. And they did it that way very intentionally. Because if the head of the court speaks first, well, who's going to want to speak up against him? But if the least distinguished speaks first, then he feels free to express his opinion. And those who come later feel free to express alternative opinions if if they choose. And that way, there's a vibrant discussion of possibilities and options and points of view. And the more discussion there is looking from every possible angle, the more likely it is that the conclusions and the decisions that we reach 
are going to be the best possible conclusions and decisions that we can reach. In my college fraternity, that was the process for speaking. You always started with the least senior and moved around to the most senior. Very interesting. In addition to speaking, teaching, you write prolifically. And I was able to read some of the materials on your blog site. And one struck me as particularly apropos for this point and where we find ourselves. And we're recording this in July 2020. You had a blog post entitled The Ethics of Academics, Epidemics, and you gave five practical lessons from the coronavirus outbreak. You hosted that, I believe, in April or March, and we're now in July. But I was wondering if you could go through those lessons and do they still apply where we are today? They applied before where we are today. I think they're universals. They just, the circumstances in which we live are often instructive to teach us things that we should probably know anyway. And I'll try to just hit the bullet points. The first is that everything you do matters. If I decide that I want to have bat or hedgehog for dinner, I could say, hell, who am I hurting? Well, maybe no one, or maybe I'm going to set off a global contagion. But the point is not what I'm choosing to eat, but rather understanding that little actions, little words, little behaviors can have enormous and far-reaching ramifications. And this is really the essence of ethics, to be aware of how my actions affect the world around me. The second is that we have to protect our ethical health. Behavior is infectious, for better and for worse. Jim Rohn, I love his quote, that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so if you look around at the people you're associating with, and they're people who are people of integrity, they're refined in their speech, they're disciplined, they're high-minded, they're visionaries. Chances are you're going to absorb those qualities. And if you're hanging around with people who are, let's say, less admirable or less refined, then chances are you're going to get pulled down. The third is what you don't see can hurt you. There was a time when germ theory was extremely controversial. And there was a lot of damage done because doctors didn't do, can you imagine, not washing their hands? transmitting disease without having any awareness of what they were doing. So we go back to those soft skills. Maybe we can't measure their value. What's the price you put on a smile or a good morning or a how are you doing or what can I do to help? You can't put a cash value on that. But the effect that has on a culture is absolutely priceless and incalculable. Fourth is we need each other. The internet has encouraged us to make all of our relationships superficial, even the face-to-face relationships. Our interactions, our, the, le- the level and depth of our conversation has become so shallow. But now that we can't sort of pretend that we're connected because of pr- physical proximity, now we have to use the internet to try to reach out. I've made connections with people I never would have communicated with before this pandemic set in. All kinds of people. I was on a podcast with a, the host was a black Muslim woman, and, and I'm here with a, the white male Orthodox Jewish rabbi. And we had a very nice engaging conversation. We disagreed on some things, but we were civil with each other. And we both loved the optics. Two people who in all likelihood would never have crossed paths were able to learn from each other and were able to have a substantive interaction. And finally, don't wait for the next crisis. George Bush became obsessed with the idea that we were headed for a pandemic because statistically, you have one every 100 years. 100 years. So you know, it's been 102 years since the last one. And he started a whole program to prepare for it. Unfortunately, his successors 
did not continue that. If we wouldn't have had one, you'd say that's wasted money. Well, that's like saying that I'm upset I didn't get to use my health insurance because I'm healthy. Or I'm upset that I have work in this comp and I didn't get hurt. I mean, that's foolishness. We take precautions. We set up systems so that when disaster strikes, and it will, we'll be ready to deal with it. So you've also written an ebook, which I believe is called The Ethical Affluence. It's also available on your website. Could you tell us a little bit about what that book is on? It's really a lot of what we've been talking about already. I use an acronym there. I type the Code of Ethics. C, D, and E are in capital letters for communication, diversity, and ethics. And those can be seen as the triad that support successful relationships. And relationships are the foundation of everything in business, in our personal lives. If we communicate, if you can understand me and I can understand you, now we can start working together. But if I'm not being clear or if I'm not listening, then we really have no way we can work together. Diversity is not just cultural or ethnic diversity, it's intellectual diversity. It's having people coming from different points of view and different angles and different experiences and different reference points. Because what do you want from a partner? You don't want somebody just like you. You want somebody who's good at the things you're not good at. You want somebody who sees things in a different way. So that diversity, that intellectual diversity creates, it stimulates thought and new ideas. And then ethics we've been talking about, that sensitivity to how my actions affect those around me in the world. And that I have an image that I want to preserve because we used to say, or our fathers used to say, right? Remember, a man is as good as his word. Now we have to say, I guess a person is as good as his or her word. But if I'm not trusted, it goes back to the trust. If, it's, if I'm not trusted, how am I possibly going to be able to have a flourishing business enterprise or sound and healthy personal relationships? Listen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or find out any more information about yourself or any of the services you offer, where could they go? Well, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I have all of my information pretty much assembled on my website, which is my name, jonasandgoldson.com. And I'm always interested to take the conversation offline. If anyone would like to discuss any of these concepts or discuss possibilities, I'm always eager to have those kinds of conversations. Well, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me today. I hope that as we move into the last half of the year and maybe even 2021 and going forward, I might be able to call upon you again for an additional conversation. I would be absolutely delighted. Thank you so much. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.